Now we're going to continue our study series of partnership. Um, So if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians, it's somewhere around page 978, I think, in the black Bibles that are in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you could grab one of those black Bibles and crack that open. We like to spend time every week studying the Bible together because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and the relevance of Jesus. You'll see this motif in literature a lot of times about the silence of God. And I know sometimes we feel like God is silent, but a good question to ask yourself is, am I listening to where he's already spoken? And we believe that he's spoken in his words. We're going to spend time studying it. We're going to open up Galatians 1. We're calling the sermon this morning, Partners in the Story. We've been looking at different New Testament texts that show us what it looks like to be partners in a local church. We've talked about that word partnership, sometimes translated as fellowship, means working together on the same mission. So we see that in a lot of different aspects throughout the New Testament. There's another word that appears a lot in the New Testament, that's membership, that we're different parts that kind of belong to each other. And then another concept is family, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in the same spiritual family. God has put us on the same team. So we've been trying to study what that looks like. Next week, we'll actually release forms where you can follow up and say, yeah, I actually want to be officially a partner with Grace Bible Church if you'd like to begin that process. So we'll start releasing those forms publicly next week, put them on the website, put papers in the back of the room, and we'll kind of begin that process uh, kind of from now on, giving people that option to officially say, yes, I'm excited about what Jesus is doing at Grace Bible Church. I'm excited about Jesus. I believe in him, and I want to follow Jesus at Grace Bible Church. So just partnering together as a local church. So this week, we're thinking about our story. Um, We all love stories. Raise your hand if you love a good story. You like a good story? Almost everybody. Half of you hate stories. But a lot of us, I'm just kidding, a lot of us love good stories. And I think we we relate to stories in different ways, right? Like some of us like a good short story or uh, maybe a good story in a song. There's a lot of good song lyrics that are actually telling a story. Um, Sometimes we relate to stories better through movies, through maybe a short sitcom. Kind of we connect with stories in different places. I always enjoy watching a couple tell a story together. Do you like that? Especially a couple that's been married together for a long time, or maybe like a couple of best friends that have done a lot of life together. It's just funny to watch two people tell a story back and forth. You know, sometimes you've got one person that tells the bulk of the story, and the other person is just there for for color commentary, you know, adding little details. Or you've got the kind of They're competing over the story, like one starts telling the story and the other one's like, no, no, tell this part, and then they tell that part. And there's kind of a back and forth in storytelling that's fun to see with two different people. And the text we're going to look at today is Paul telling his story of how he began following Jesus. But what's interesting is is my thesis is that Paul, and really all of us, when we're telling our story of following Jesus, there's that same back and forth, like an old married couple telling a story. We're, We're telling our part, and God is telling his part. God is telling a big story of saving the cosmos, saving the world. We're telling our little story of our little part in it, and there's going to be a back and forth. And so my prayer is that by the end of today, and as we practice as a people telling the story, we'll get better at telling our story along with God. God's telling a big story of saving a people for himself. We're telling a little story of what God's done in our own life, and we'll have a good example here with the Apostle Paul. So let's look at Paul's story Galatians 1, it's 11 through 24 that I'll read to get us started. Starting in verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, or the good news, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So he's kind of starting off saying, it's not something that was made up by man. He continues in verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles or the other nations, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie, he says. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Got a great story here. The Apostle Paul, it's told here. He gives us snippets on all of his New Testament letters, little aside comments about his story. And then in the book of Acts, his story is actually told by his partner Luke. Luke in the book of Acts tells his story like three times in the book of Acts. So we get the Apostle Paul's story a lot. So this is a good one to kind of pick on and think about our own story. So let me pray and ask God to help us to understand what he's saying here in the text and how that applies in our life. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us. We thank you that you are um, writing this great story and that we get to be a part of your story. We pray that you would help us to tell our story well as we tell it in conversation with you, the master storyteller, the one that's telling the ultimate story of rescue and redemption. We thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, there's this master story that, that God is telling, and I would say kind of the one story of the whole Bible here, of this, this whole book, is this creation that God has made beautiful and perfect, and then because of us, it's fallen into sin and rebellion, and so now there's brokenness in the world, but God didn't just leave us to our brokenness, right? He actually came after us in Jesus, and he nails our sins on the cross with Jesus, and Jesus dies with our sins, but he rises from the dead, so now by faith in Jesus, we can have resurrection life in Christ, And so that's our redemption, and now we're still headed towards that future where it's going to be cosmic, and he's going to remake everything, right? And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more crying. Usually what we refer to is just that one word, heaven, right? But it's going to be really bigger even than that word. It's going to be this perfect creation, new creation, everything made right. That's the big story that God is telling, Uh, and he, he takes up 66 books to do that, right? This is a big book written over thousands of years by a lot of authors, and God is telling this big story. Well, we can kind of shrink that down a little bit and look at Paul's story. How does Paul's story mirror that story? And I think it's helpful to kind of break it down into sections here. And the first thing that I want us to see is that we're telling often a story of alternate saviors. You're going to see in Paul's story that there were alternate saviors that Paul was pursuing until he began to trust ultimately in Jesus as the true savior. And what I want you to see is that all of us have these competing and alternate saviors that are vying for our allegiance. And so let's look at what Paul says here in these first few verses and understand what I mean by these alternate saviors. So look again, uh, it says 11 on the screen. I'm going to start us in verse 14, I think. Let's see, verse 13. Yeah, 
So he says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So in his faithfulness to Judaism, he was trying to destroy Christianity. Okay, So he was a very devout leader uh, among the Jewish teachers. So again, verse 14, and it says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So he was like the top dog, right? Like he was better than others. He was smarter, stronger, faster, knew more Bible. He was studying the Old Testament. He'd memorized it. He was a great, strong teacher and leader and actually trying to persecute and destroy the church. Goes on the second half of verse 14. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he was zealous. That meant he, he cared deeply for the traditions of his fathers. So he was like super religious guy. He did everything right. He obeyed the Old Testament. Not only did he do everything right in a moral sense, according to the Old Testament, but he was also trying to destroy this weird new sect called Christianity, the way of Jesus, okay? He's trying to stamp that out because he didn't see it as fitting with the strict adherence to the Old Testament. And he goes on and says, in, uh, well, we'll just stop there. So he was extremely zealous. We'll get to the next section in a little bit. He's extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And what I want you to see is that you can have a story of faith in Christ that is actually a story that very much is a religious story. And it doesn't have to look like a story where you were living a hard life as a drug dealer or a prostitute and then dramatically started following Jesus and living a new life, Right? I think we often think that really the exciting stories of faith are the ones where someone was walking in this very dramatic direction of sin, and then Jesus turned them around, and now they're walking in a new direction because of faith in Jesus. And those stories are perfectly valid. We love you, and we love your story. But I think a lot of people have this other kind of story, and they think there's something wrong with it, where it's like, I grew up in a Christian home, and mom and dad loved me and told me about Jesus. I believed in Jesus from the first time I heard it. And then you think later on, oh, there's something wrong with me because I didn't wander and have that terrible story of, you know, being in a gang, right? What I want you to understand is your story is a good story, no matter which one of those stories you have, right? They're all valid stories. And one of the ways that we can understand how to tell that we need Jesus and we love Jesus is to recognize the competing saviors that we're drawn to. So even if you believed in Jesus from your earliest age, you could be lured to this alternate savior that Paul was lured to. And that was the alternate savior of religious tradition, of just being a good guy or a good girl. You know what I'm talking about? We can fall into this thinking that if I'm good, if I'm really good, then God will bless me. And we want to step back and say, yeah, there's a general way God has wired the universe where when we do things well, there's blessing agreed, right? The wisdom of Proverbs, the structure in the universe, it's better to do things well than to do things badly, right? Affirm that. But God makes it clear that we can't force him to pay us in blessings because we've performed well, right? None of us can be good enough. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we see in the apostle Paul this clarity where he says, I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I was more religious than anybody else. 
I was like the, the chief of the Sunday school department. You know, like I did everything right. I volunteered. I gave money. I worked in the nursery. I taught in the seminary. I did all these religious things. And yet Jesus had to come and knock me off my donkey or horse or whatever it was he was on, right? You can go read the story in Acts. But, but Jesus literally like struck him down. The revelation of Jesus kind of knocked him out. He had to have this dramatic redirection because he thought, that just being really, really, really good was going to save him. And some of us think that too. We think if I'm just perfect enough, then God will be forced to bless me. If I just do enough right things, then I'm going to get good stuff out of God. And sometimes we wake up to that being false teaching when disaster happens in our lives. So for those of you that, that have gone through that kind of hard thing, I'm, I'm sorry, and that breaks my heart when we go through those things. I've hit things like that too, where it just it makes you question but God, I thought I, was, I thought I was doing everything right, so why wouldn't you just bless me with, with perfect peace and affluence, right? Why wouldn't I get all these, get all these rewards? And, and that can sometimes wake us up to the reality that the person of Jesus is really who we need. We, we shouldn't be longing for the blessings apart from the person, right? Adam and Eve, another way to frame this, is Adam and Eve wanted the blessings of creation. They said, we want to take the fruit but we want to break the relationship with God. We don't want to listen to God. We don't want to obey God. We don't really love God. We just want his stuff. So my question for you is, are you like Paul, religiously zealous, doing all the right things? And I can relate to this. I was a Boy Scout, right? I've been a pretty good kid half of my life, right? <laughs> I've kind of lived on both sides. So I know what it's like to be a good kid and think being a good kid will earn me blessings from God. Paul says here, no, he had to be broken of that and realize that his zealousness was actually an alternate savior. If you don't buy it yet, I want to show you something else that Paul says in Galatians 4. So let's flip over a page to Galatians 4, verses 8 and 9. We'll see this in Galatians 4, 8 and 9, and this will kind of nail it down for you. So to give you context in the book of Galatians, the whole book is written to pagan people who belong to a different religion, and then they discovered Jesus, they found salvation in Jesus, and then Jewish teachers came along and said, yeah, pagans, it's not enough for you to just trust in Jesus. You have to also become culturally religious, right? You have to obey the Old Testament food laws. You have to obey the Sabbaths and feasts. You have to look like a Jew and follow all these external commandments. It's not enough to just trust in Jesus. Paul is writing them and saying, no, they're wrong. The good news is Jesus. And you can't add anything to that, right? And so here he's going to clarify it in another way. Chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 8 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So what is he saying? He's saying to these pagan Greek people, back before you knew Jesus, you were enslaved to these other false gods, right? We would call that idol worship or worshiping alternate saviors, worshiping false gods. Now look at what he says in verse 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, which is an important change of perspective, right? Now that God has shown himself to you, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So, so follow this. They were pagans worshiping idols. Now they start trusting Jesus. People come along and say, that's not enough. You need to become a Jew. Paul says, if they become a Jew and try to trust Jesus and become a Jew at the same time to get salvation out of their Jewishness as well as trusting Jesus, that that would be the same as turning back to their pagan idol worship. You see that? 
He's saying going to Jewish law-keeping is just another alternate savior. All the Jewish law-keeping was pointing forward to Jesus. So the Apostle Paul had the Old Testament memorized as a great Old Testament Pharisee, a great Jewish leader, but he thought it was all about him and his law-keeping. He didn't understand that it was all about Jesus, the Savior. And so when the Savior comes, those former things pass away, and he is the fulfillment that we've been looking for. So here Paul is making a strong case. We can turn back to chapter 1 again. He's making a strong case that even our religion, even being a good churchy person, can become a false savior. We're not really trusting Jesus. We're trusting ourselves and our ability to be good. See the difference? And I know this can be really confusing for some of you, and I just want to apologize. I know it's kind of like a kick in the stomach, right? Like that someone would say, wait, all of my faithfulness is filthy rags? Well, God says that in Isaiah, right? Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Uh, So sometimes it's good for us to go through that painful experience of realizing that everything that we've tried so hard to do is not enough. It's not enough. God can use the things we do to bless other people, to do good things in life, but it's not enough for us to win salvation before God. Only God is perfect, and so only God can provide that perfect salvation for us in Jesus. I grabbed a couple of pictures of some people worshiping idols in ancient temples, well, in semi-ancient temples in Asia. When we were visiting Asia, here's someone bowing down to, it's hard to see the statue, but it was just a weird, creepy statue that she's bowing down to. It's an action shot there, someone you know, physically bowing. And then there was another one. This was another temple we went to, and this one was super, super creepy. They have just like these garish, cartoon-like false gods. And when you had the experience of, of watching people bow down to idols, it's very stark, right? It, it's just kind of, it, my stomach hurt actually when we went to that second temple. It was just kind of scary. We prayed a lot when we were there. Um, and you feel this demonic presence there. And so what I want you to connect the dots with here is that sometimes you see someone physically bowing down to something that you know is, is not the real God. And it's very stark and clear, and you can tell they're worshiping something that's not God, right? Other times, though, it's more subtle. We're, we're actually bowing down to our Sunday school attendance, our own faithfulness, how much we give, how much we do, how much God is now indebted to us because we've been so righteous. And that's the kind of false savior that Paul was trapped with. He was worshiping this alternate savior that was actually his own performance, and it wasn't God himself. So my question for you is, what is that false savior that might be pulling on your heart? For me, sometimes, as a leader of a church, that false savior can be ministry success, right? Like how our numbers are doing. Are we, do we still have the explosive growth we had a few years ago? Do we still have tons of people meeting Jesus and doing all, well, are those good things? Well, yeah, they're, they're good things, right? Like we want the church to do well, but that's not my salvation. That's not my identity. Another thing that, that draws away my heart sometimes is just pleasing people, right? Just God's wired me so that I, I love people. I love to make people feel comfortable and at ease. But you know what? That can be a false savior. My, my job is not to please everyone in the world, right? Sometimes... I would break other commandments if I'm trying to please people. You know, sometimes it makes me fail to be faithful in other ways because I'm worshiping this false savior of being a people pleaser in some kind of unhealthy way. So now I've confessed to you. Now I want to go around every person and where that might take too long. I'm just going to ask you to kind of do that on your own time, but to, to find maybe a brother or sister or a friend and say, yeah, this is the, this is the alternate savior I'm struggling with. 
I struggle with thinking that I can be saved because I'm a good soldier. I struggle with thinking that I could be saved or secure or okay because I'm a good teacher. I struggle with thinking that I can be okay or secure because I have a really good relationship. I'm with this guy and he's just really awesome and everything's gonna be all right now. Or I've saved up a lot of money. I've got a really good retirement account. So now I know I'm gonna be okay. What, what is the thing in your life that you think this is gonna make everything okay? This is going to establish me. This is gonna go me, give me a foundation. And I say, that's the alternate savior that you're in danger of worshiping instead of Jesus. So do, does that mean we throw all these things away, right? We just run the other direction. No more relationships, no more money, no more pleasing people. No, we just say, those things can't save me. And there might be a wiring in me, like I might be really good at making money, but I have to learn that money can't save me. So I have to learn that Jesus saves me, and then I'm gonna use that gift of making money to honor him. Or Jesus has saved me, and then because of that, I have a security so that I can love my relationships and not try to pull a salvation and a security out of those relationships that's inappropriate, right? Jesus saved me, so I'm gonna be good at my job. I'm gonna do it with excellence, but I'm not gonna do it with excellence because I'm desperate for an identity, I'm gonna do it with excellence because I know I'm secure in Christ. And so it's the orientation we have towards those things that God has called us to. What is the false savior that is drawing you away? And I think when you begin to understand that, that gives you a great way to relate to other people so that you can tell your story of what God has been doing in your life. You can say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner just like everybody else and I wrestle with finding my security and other things, but I'm learning day by day that I can really have security in Jesus. He's the one that's really faithful. And I've learned to trust him more than these other forms of security, more than these alternate saviors. It gives you a place to start, to begin having a conversation with other people. I encourage you to begin telling that story, begin talking to other people about it. The next thing I want us to see is that we have a story of grace. Every Christian story is a story of God's grace. I would argue that every non-Christian story is a story of our own effort. So this is a story of God's grace. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Um, God's grace, his kindness to us. So back in chapter one, verse 15 says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was, re- was pleased to reveal his son to me, So we've got some confusing stuff here. He says, when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace, that can be a hard concept, right? This idea that God is outside of time, that he's working uh, in, you know, eternity past. We don't fully understand that. There's some words uh, in the rest of the New Testament we saw like in Romans, like predestination, foreordination, stuff like that. Um, Here, I think, I just want to fixate on the word grace, I think that's a little simpler to understand. The word grace, a lot of pastors like to say it's God's riches at Christ's expense. So here, Paul's saying, God was at work some mysterious way in the past calling me, but it was ultimately his grace, his kindness to me, or it might be a better way for you to remember, God's riches at Christ's expense. A nice acronym to remember biblically what grace is. It says in verse 16, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
So again, remember in context, he's, he's framing a story here to help them understand this wasn't some made up story he had or some made up gospel. He didn't get this from this teacher or that teacher, but he got it from Jesus. And so he's kind of telling those parts of his story that help us to understand that. Uh, when you compare and line up all the different parts of the story, this story is told multiple times throughout the New Testament. On a first reading, sometimes they don't line up. I just encourage you with this, the way that Luke wrote the book of Acts is he doesn't always give us every single detail. So sometimes that makes it confusing when we're comparing one story to the next. You know, like I told you about the married couple. Well, no, tell them about this part and don't forget this part. You know, in different places, he's telling different parts of the story. And so we see this idea of grace. He said, God had called me by his grace. He'd set me apart. God was showing grace to me, his kindness. Do you understand this beauty of God's grace at work in your life? Do you understand that God is is pleased with you in Jesus, that he has shown grace to you through Christ? Paul is saying his story was ultimately a story of grace, not about what he had accomplished. He was giving up what he had accomplished and now turning with open hands what we would call faith to receive the gift of this outside salvation. In a few weeks, it'll be the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and just so you know, you know, full transparency, Martin Luther was kind of crazy at points, but he also had some really breakthrough, huge insights. He posted this thing called the 95 Thesis on the Castle Door of Wittenberg uh, to basically say, I'm going to take issue with the traditions of my fathers, and I'm going to say, this is what the Bible actually says. And one of the big points that Luther emphasizes is that grace and salvation is something external that comes from God. It's not something we create or build from ourselves. It's something we re- receive with open hands of faith. And so I picked a picture of a gift here, someone giving a gift. You enjoy receiving a gift? Probably if you receive a gift, it was Pastor Appreciation Day, so I got a bunch of gifts. I got like a pound of bacon and some rolls, awesome, good gifts today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's this little part in me that wants to be like, let me give you something in return, right? And you just, you can't always do that, right? Especially with salvation. You just have to receive this gift. You can't earn it. You just have to receive it. You just have to say thank you. Thank you for the gift. The gift of salvation is grace. It's not something we merit, but it's unmerited. We don't earn it, but it's given to us because God is just generous, not because we're so awesome. And that's what Paul is communicating here when he uses the word grace. I think as we think about that, it's, it's helpful to break it into kind of two buckets of grace. So here are my two grace buckets for you. One is the facts of grace. Are you familiar with the facts? I would say the, the cross, how Jesus actually saved us, how God showed that grace to us. Do you understand those facts? When we're studying Romans, I encourage you to learn the Roman road. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the term, the Roman road. Some of you have heard that. Okay. The Roman road is just a set of Bible verses that people uh, pull out of the book of Romans because it kind of gives you a pathway to understand what Jesus has done for us. And so if you want to write these down, it's really helpful to learn these so that you can tell other people the story of Jesus. It's Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9. So Romans 3.23, 5.8, 6.23, and 10.9. I can tell you later if, if you forgot or don't have a pen. But these are facts of the gospel, facts of the good news that kind of tell us 